1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Nick McGore, our retail banking correspondent, and Don Wineland, our Asia financial correspondent. Also down the line from Dublin, we're joined by Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. And our guest this week is Richard Nodder. He's the head of Goldman Sachs International. This week, we'll be looking at Goldman's latest plans for its rollout of a retail banking offering. Secondly, we'll be looking at RBS as it settles a big US fine. And finally, a look at JP Morgan in China and what its strategies for asset management tell about the broader strategy of financial services firms in China. First, though, to Goldman Sachs. And Laura, you and I interviewed Richard Nodder, the head of Goldman Sachs International, the other day. He was quite interesting on a number of subjects, but I thought maybe we could start off by listening to what he had to say about the rollout of Marcus. This is the consumer banking initiative that Goldman launched a while back in the US, but is about to come to Europe, first in the UK and then Germany. Here's what he had to say.
2: So Marcus is launching in June in the UK. You know, the first iteration here will be deposit gathering and you know, offering savings products. And so we'll grow that, you know, starting in June and, and take it forward. Obviously, globally, yeah, we're both savings products, but we're also making loans and you know lending to consumers. And I think it's an example for us where we can, you know, in the first instance, use our engineering skill set, use our technology platforms to really be be a disruptor as opposed yeah. to being disrupted. And it's obviously a business that we've not been in before, so we don't have legacy bricks and mortar. But the deposit market is a tough
3: one, especially in these interest rates. Like, Why is the UK a good place to launch to get more savings? Most banks are trying to get rid of savings.
2: Well, it depends where you start from. We don't have a significant deposit platform yeah. here. So in terms of diversifying our funding base, it's an important component of that. We would like to have a bigger representation from the deposit markets in our funding base. And so we're driving that on a global basis. And that's what this UK initiative is about. We'll, you know, We'll be talking about... Similar platforms across Europe, Germany will be next. And so we'll extend the deposit gathering platform on a, on a global basis.
1: And then we, uh, among the other topics we asked him about was Brexit and what Goldman has done so far to deal with Brexit.
2: If I had to try and define the work streams around Brexit, real estate, that's done. We've locked down our real estate. The pipes and plumbing and infrastructure yeah, that those facilities require, yeah, that's in place. The discussions with regulators in terms of licences you know, so we can access those markets you know, with the products and the people that we want, you know, those are well underway. because you know, We're still operating under a worst-case assumption that we need yeah. to be ready by March 2019. You know, so that's all underway. You know, transitionals are obviously really important. We'd love to see that ratified <laughs> sooner rather than later because that'll, that'll give us more time. If they don't come through, we'll be ready by March of, of 2019. In terms of people you know we decided at the outset to do this on a on a rolling basis we didn't need to make any big announcements we have already moved a good number of people we've moved client-facing people you know across a number of our businesses to milan to Frankfurt, to paris there's a real benefit to that putting our people close to their clients which i think will enhance our business and help grow our revenues and so we've moved client-facing people We've also moved some additional product capabilities so that we can build a more rounded ecosystem in terms of delivering services and solutions to our clients, and so those moves have already taken place. And so, you know, for example, we've moved you know, six or so you know, bankers to Milan. We've moved 60% of our moves across our investment banking, financing groups um, that we planned under Brexit have already taken place. We'll be moving security sales people to Paris before the summer, and so we're doing it. you know in groups of people, and we've been doing it over the last you know, 12, 18 months, and so it's a, you know, so it's a, a rolling program.
1: So Laura, that and many other subjects we talked to Richard Nodder about last week. What did you come away with as a kind of overall impression? Particularly on maybe starting on the on the consumer banking initiative. How big is this for Goldman?
3: Well, it's pretty. Small now. I mean, we're talking about a couple of billion of loans in the context of a very large bank. But I think, I guess, the impression I got from him was that they wanted to be. I mean, the word he used is meaningful. They wanted to be a meaningful part of the group. And for that, I guess you could see it ultimately becoming the same size as their investment banking business, as their asset management business, or as any of the other large businesses. So. They seem to have a lot of ambition for it. I mean, there are still questions about whether it's the right thing for them to do and about whether those ambitions are actually achievable. But certainly one of the things he said was they had no shortage of ambition for it and they were open to all kinds of things, including partnerships with some of the big tech companies. But I mean, Goldman at the moment trades as a higher multiple than the retail banks. So there is still a school of thought that says that if they get a big retail banking arm, that's just going to be something that's going to dilute the multiple. Therefore, why should they want to do this, especially when the investment banking world seems to be picking up again? So they do want to be big, but it's not clear that being big is a good thing for them.
1: I guess their Brexit strategy, which is the other clip we played there, speaks for itself. They're maybe a bit ahead of the pack in terms of moving people out, but it's a relatively small move of people.
3: Yeah, they've moved about half of the people that they expect to have to move, but they're talking about very, very small numbers, and that goes to the point of no regret. So what they're trying to do is get their house in order so that they can be ready for March 2019. They're not factoring in any element of transition. But because the numbers are so low, if there's any kind of unexpected reprieve between now and March 2019, it's not going to cost them too much to move these additional people. And actually, There is good business sense to moving some of them, regardless of Brexit. So some of what Richard was talking about was moving people who already face clients in Spain, clients in Italy, clients in Frankfurt, moving them to the markets that their clients are already in. So while the impetus for doing it is undoubtedly Brexit, it might actually make good sense to keep them there now that they've been moved anyway, because pretty much anywhere that you move somebody to, with the possible exception of Paris, almost every other centre is going to be a cheaper location to base people in than London. So there would be good arguments for keeping those people there, even if there was some kind of last minute reprieve on the terms and conditions for Brexit.
1: A final word from you, Laura, on something that's happened since we spoke to Mr. Nodder, namely the departure of two of the most senior figures in Goldman's core securities trading business. What does that mean, do you think? What does it imply about the dynamics within the bank?
3: So instead of having three co-securities heads, we now have a sole securities head, Ashok Varadan. I guess you could say that having had so many co-heads for such a long time, there will be more kind of clarity of purpose when you have a single person in charge. This obviously comes across the backdrop of government having had a fairly poor trading year last year. They've done a lot of internal change within the divisions. The bank is guiding that it was purely a coincidence that they came at the same time and that the heir apparent to Lloyd Blankfein, that's David Solomon, that he asked them both to stay. So the bank is very much trying to say that there is no question that these people were pushed because of what happened last year and that it just happens that they're going.
1: Does it mean David Solomon, who's the heir apparent at the top of Goldman, having come from the advisory side of the business, is cementing his power at the expense of a couple of senior trading people?
3: I'm not sure how much this really does to consolidate David Salmond Tower because he was already the heir apparent and there will still be someone very senior in charge of the trading. So there'll be fewer people of that higher level of seniority from the trading side of the House. But I don't think that they had three votes against his one anyway. So I'm not sure it is really significant in that sense.
1: Okay, that's great, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's move on to our second topic of the day, and Nick McGaw is here to tell us about RBS and what is a pretty landmark fine settlement for them. Tell us what's happened, Nick.
4: Yeah, so uh, RBS agreed last week to pay $4.9 billion to the US Department of Justice related to the mis-selling of mortgage-backed securities in the run-up to the last financial crisis. It's a landmark for RBS and that they've been waiting for this for years, essentially. And I mean, it's a very big figure, but as we saw with Barclays a couple of weeks ago, it was actually smaller than a lot of people had feared. And the majority of it, so three and a half billion, is already covered by money that they'd put aside.
1: How does it compare with other settlements out there? I mean, we've had massive ones as well from the likes of Deutsche Bank. Barclays more recently was a smaller figure, I think. But in the pantheon of these mortgage-backed security settlements, where does it fit?
4: I think it takes RBS total fines since the crisis. They've overtaken Deutsche Bank now. It's up in the tens of billions, I think.
1: What does it mean for RBS going forward? This was the biggest cloud hanging over them, I think it's fair to say. What does it mean for concrete things like being able to pay dividends now that this uncertainty is removed, potentially the massive government stake, 70% plus, I think, being saleable back into the private sector?
4: As you say, it's been the biggest cloud hanging over them for quite a while now. And yeah, you've kind of touched on two of what the three big potential consequences of it being settled are. The first one, and probably the most immediate, is it makes it a lot easier for the government to start selling down that big shareholding it has, which it's likely to do sooner rather than later. Philip Hammond has £3 billion budgeted for this year, with contributions from the share sale, and the expectation is that it's going to start sounding people out before the summer. The second point, and this is linked, is, yeah, what it means for them finally restarting dividends. Ross McEwen, RBS's CEO, has been pretty vocal about wanting to get back to paying out as soon as possible. One of the key benefits of that would be, it would be a good way for them to broaden out the number of people who can get involved in those share sales. So there's a lot of income funds who aren't allowed to buy in at the moment because it doesn't pay out a dividend. It's probably not going to get sorted before the sale starts because there's just practical things where they have to get approval from regulators before they can deal with that. The final wildcard question is what this means for Ross McEwan. There's been speculation for quite a while that he might want to leave RBS and maybe go back home to New Zealand. He's always said he's got things that he'd like to do before he leaves, but those goalposts have kind of moved each time that they've finished something big. Last week, Ross said he's got plans for the next two years or so, but um, I don't think that's going to stop people speculating about whether he'll actually make it the full length.
1: Thank you for that. Let's move on to our final topic and delighted that Don Wineland, normally resident in Hong Kong for us as our Asia financial correspondent, is here in London. Welcome, Don. And you've been breaking some interesting stories over the past few days, writing recently about JP Morgan and their strategy in asset management in China. But this shines a light on a broader trend, doesn't it, that we've been seeing in recent days and weeks around Western financial institutions in China of stepping up plans to take fuller ownership of their operations there, squeezing out or minimizing the involvement of Chinese partners because of a new stance
0: from the government in China. Is that broadly right? That's right. So on Monday, JP Morgan said that it will apply to take majority control over its asset management JV in China. And that's followed an announcement last week where it said that it had applied to take majority control of its Securities JV in China. So basically the bigger picture here is that these global banks have been trying to make inroads into these industries in China for well over a decade. This is a 14 year, 15 year journey for a lot of these banks. And it's been very difficult. Most of the securities JVs with global banks in China have not done incredibly well. The businesses are still relatively small. They're competing against huge domestic securities houses and banks in China. So what China is doing is it's opening up its market and it's allowing the global banks to take majority control. And, you know, if you're talking with the banks in Asia, the view is that this is going to help them deal with some of the sticky relationships that they've had with domestic partners. They should be able to expand their business quicker. It's relatively positive at this point. But at the same time, I would also say that this is something that's been going on for more than a decade now. China's kind of been dangling these types of advancements in the market for a long time. So I guess I'll believe it when I actually see them take majority control in these companies.
1: Well, it'll certainly be a very key trend to follow if it does come through. Although uh, when anybody makes money, is going to be another question, as you say that's it for this week all that's left for me to do is to thank don and nick here in the studio and laura down the line from dublin thank you for listening as well remember you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking banking weekly was produced by fiona simon until next week goodbye